Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. In our Culture Wars episode this week, what's up with French President Macron suing the owner of billboards depicting him as, well, Hitler? This from a leader who has defended free speech across the years, including the ill-fated Charlie Hebdo publication's caricatures ridiculing Islam's prophet Mohammed as freedom of expression. A case of Mohammed C. Macron no? Let's give a listen to what Macron used to say about free speech, even referencing Voltaire on his own behalf. Then a report from RT's Charlotte Dubinsky searching for answers. To be French is to defend the right to make people laugh, the freedom to mock, to ridicule, to caricature, which Voltaire claimed was the source of all the others. We will not give up caricatures, drawings, even if others retreat. In Macron land, making fun of the prophet's rear is satire, but to make fun of the president as a dictator is blasphemy. Time and time again during his presidency, Emmanuel Macron has defended freedom of expression here in France. That freedom is also enshrined in the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, though that does have limits. Whether or not they extend to this billboard depicting Macron as Hitler is another matter. It was erected as part of protests against the COVID-19 restrictions in place in France, but it's picked his anger. So much so, he's now suing its creator. Michel-Ange Fleury, who defends the billboard, says it's not necessarily a comparison with the Nazi leader. You see Hitler, or I can see Charlie Chaplin in The Dictator. Now, when satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo republished controversial cartoons of the Muslim prophet last year, Macron defended its right to do so. That fresh publication, though, sparked off its own chain reaction, leading finally to the beheading of a teacher. So, by hitting out at this billboard, is this a case of Macron having double standards? Am I sorry for Macron? No, because when it comes to making caricatures of our prophet Mohammed, it does not pose a problem for anyone. And when it concerns him, it poses a problem. So it's a case of double standards, and that's wrong. He should do what he did for Charlie Hebdo and defend freedom of expression. Yes, I understand that he feels offended. Being compared to Hitler is nothing to be proud of. So I can understand that he's offended. But on the other hand, he defends a certain freedom of expression. It's a little paradoxical. So how do people here feel about this comparison? Is Macron right to take action, or should he too take a leaf out of his own book and accept such caricatures as part and parcel of being the head of state? For once, yes. He was upset because it concerns him personally. But when it concerns millions of Muslims who are French, who work and pay their taxes, then there is no one to defend them. He should pull himself together because it's a caricature. The guy just wants to make fun of him and shouldn't really offend him. Hitler remains a fairly negative figure, but he's still part of history. Admittedly, it's understandable that he's not flattered, but he should take it on the chin. Being a public political figure, what does he expect? I think he has bigger fish to fry. We saw Emmanuel Macron himself in the morning praising Charlie Hebdo for their cartoons and in the afternoon, the afternoon uh, scolding Georges Malbruno, a French journalist, for doing his job as a journalist. And now we see uh, this reaction for Emmanuel Macron. So no, it is beyond double standards. It, it, in France, it has never been about freedom of expression per se, because freedom of expression would be universal to everyone. It is only about protecting the privilege of expression of the elites, which means as long as you are on the dominant side, you can make fun of everybody else, the poor, the black, the, you know, the, the Arab, the Muslim, the women, etc. But once you make fun of the power in place, the president himself, now you are facing prosecution. Yes, he has a right to argue, but as a president, he, he should be the person who guarantees that everybody has a right of, of, of expression. He's a president. He should be above that. 
Now, if the billboard owner is found guilty of such, he could spend up to a year in prison, as well as being slapped with a fine of up to 45,000 euros. But perhaps by suing the billboard's creator, Macron is actually being counterproductive here in the fact that he is drawing even more attention to it. And coming up next on Arts Express, this was an opportunity for me and Pablo to break a lot of the shackles of what it is to be a single parent, what it is to be an ex-con. Actress Jenna Malone in a conversation about Lorelei, in which she stars as a single young Oregon working-class mother of three who renews a rocky relationship with Pablo Schreiber, who plays her long-ago high school boyfriend just released after 15 years in prison. And while a raw, realistic examination of the relationship, there is a rare empathy conveyed by writer-director Sabrina Doyle for struggling blue-collar characters in these economic hard times. Described as a working-class fable about a biker, a mermaid, and three shades of blue, the film also touches on a rebellion against thwarted life aspirations having to do with, yes, mermaids. Malone, who recently appeared in the slave uprising drama Antebellum and has starred as well in The Hunger Games, The Dangerous Lives of Older Boys, Donnie Darko, and Sucker Punch, is on the line from L.A. following these scenes from Lorelei. You get free room and board in exchange for three hours of chores of the day. Understood? Yeah. You want to move out of the halfway house and into your girlfriend's house? Says here she has a part-time job and has three children. Well, she ain't winning any Mother of the Year awards bringing you home. It's going to feel strange at first. Just give it time. So what's the key to self-control? Self-care. Self -care. I saw Dolores the other night. I saw two kids love each other the way you did. I wrote you. I wanted to write you back. I got pregnant. I have three total. Been busy. Yep. Touch me to the side and whoop. Mm. It's okay. Waylon's family now. Howdy. We got to surprise her like Dad said. You know I ain't your real dad, right? Me living with you, tying your shoes, playing I Spy games, none of that makes me your dad. What then? What? What makes you my dad? We are going to move to LA after I finish high school. We are going to watch the sun go down on Sunset Boulevard. Not go to sleep until, until it, it came, came up, up in the, the morning. morning. And now I'm a maid with three kids, and you're an out-of-work felon. You take one bite. Have yourself a little fun. Just making up for lost time, that's all. You smell like diesel and cheap perfume. I don't even know how to do this anymore. They're not even my They're not your kids. But they should have been. Because it wasn't supposed to be like this. Believe it or not, you're a gift to this family. I loved you so much when we were younger. And then you just went away. Where the hell are you? I'm making good, baby. You just wait and see. Did you bring anything from your own life into fleshing out Dolores as a single working mother yourself? I mean, you always bring something. The life that you lead as an actor is, the, is the, basically the palette you get to paint with um, also as an actor. So um, I think I, I was sort of the rare bird that I had had more, um, I think, personal experiences um, because I was raised by, you know, two women who were, you know, worked three different jobs and were cleaners and part-time and, you know, had four kids and just lived right above the poverty line and, so there's definitely, um, it felt like a story that I really wanted to be a part of telling because I, I was able to have held the, the beauty of that, the hardship of that, and um, and also some of the childlike magic, you know, like 
oddly, you know, growing up like that, um, I didn't really know we were poor a lot of the time. You know, it just felt sort of exciting and sweet. And so there is there is a magic to, um, you know, surviving against all the odds. And I think there's a way to do it um, to raise, you know, kids and, and um, you know, still kind of make it special. So I, I think I was a, yeah, I was the right one to cast. So I was very glad Sabrina brought me on. And what about these economic hard times, which further compound the already existing struggles of single working mothers, not to mention the plight of ex-convicts? Did that go into your choice as well to be part of this film and to be this character? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I I think that not only do we put the wrong parameters on parents, but we also box them in to uh, sort of shaming a lot of their choices. I mean, I think pre-pandemic, there was, you know, <laughs> so many years of of of, of odds against um, single women, um, single parents, and uh, there was a lot of hero worship. Which, amen, you know, rightly so. But there's also outside of the realm of what people heroize, um, they sort of you know shame and not allow real um, metamorphosis in that space. And what I liked about this story that felt really important was that it was about a woman's journey of reclamation, really reclaiming her identity and her joy. And sometimes that means, you know, leaving your kids, doing something different. Um, You know, I think previously men have been allowed that space for so long of reclaiming. um, You know, they're not asked to lose as much, I think, sometimes as a mother. And I like how unapologetically... um, you know, uh, Sabrina Doyle was able to sort of offer this different type of fable um, of a single woman. I thought it was really healing, actually, and, and very, uh, very timely. And what about the passion to fulfill your character's dreams? Was that also drawn from your own life as a struggling actress early on, and to be part of meaningful movies and films that matter? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone has their own journey. You know, my journey doesn't look the same as anyone else's, um, but yet we're all kind of in it together. So I think if you love something a lot, then there's always going to be a struggle of like how to maintain that, how to make it work for you, and then how to make it work for you and your kids. And, you know, there's all these different um, variables. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think you have to be an actor or someone pursuing something that's been deemed artistic to understand what it is to just follow your joy in this world. I think that's a very human uh, want and desire. Now, your very impressive portrayal of Dolores in Lorelei is complex and nuanced, even though a flawed character. And while most portrayals of females on screen tend to be caricatures, and particularly negative when also mothers, please talk about that. Yeah, I mean, you have to show it all, right? If you're going to show, if you're going to tell something and you want multiple types of humans to sort of feel something, you have to show the good and the bad. You have to show the joy um, with the the depravity. And you have to see um, how much it takes to actually just get, get by in this world. And I think that this was a, you know, Sabrina really offered an opportunity both for me and Pablo um, to kind of break a lot of the shackles of what it is to be a single parent, what it is to be an ex-con, what it is to be, you know, his journey becomes more, you know, matronly. He becomes the the tender, the caregiver, um, where, you know, the woman sort of leaves, you know, in another film she would have been riding off on her motor, you know, motorcycle as a man and like pursuing you know, their dreams, but it's just, uh, it kind of flips it on the head and allows um, these two very, like you said, previously caricature works become more transcendent um, because they can kind of break break the the, the mold of um, societal's understanding of them. And what can you say about those dive bars in Lorelei, which I knew nothing about? And did you speak to those dive bar mermaids to get into character? Oh, my God, I worked intimately with them. I mean, they were, you know, my commander-in-chief. <laughs> they were wrapping my legs, put, putting weights on my on my thighs, you know. Yeah, I had no idea. We were communicating with hand signals. I was, you know, basically trusting them with my life because it's these <laughs> tiny little tanks, and you're swimming almost 
lines. You know, it's salt water and there's fish and kind of dark and <laughs> they're really, it's very challenging. I was, I was surprised I was able to do it all. I did not have as much um, rehearsal as I would have liked, but um, I could have kept doing that for months. It was an incredible community of men and women and um, I really, yeah, I loved learning about that little niche, you know, that there's like yeah. two mermaid bars in America, you know, one in Florida and one in Sacramento. Amen. I grew up in Rafferino and had no idea. And what's next for you? And I see you have another film about water coming out, The Tuna Goddess. What can you say about that? That's, I mean, still in the works. Right now, right now there's a film that I made um, right before the pandemic called, um, I think the working title right now is Porcupine which is a very interesting story about sort of a woman adrift um, economically, identity. Um, it felt very appropriate this time. And then there's um, Goliath. I worked on the season of Goliath. It's going to be coming out in September. And uh, Zack Snyder and I got to collaborate again on a little, um, little, so funny, nothing he does is little, but uh, it felt rather intimate, um, animated series for Netflix. Yeah, we'll see. And you portrayed Hitler's niece, Jelly Robel, in Hitler, The Rise of Evil. What led you into that TV series? Uh, you know, just as an audition. I mean, a script a script on my thing. I, I guess I've never been one to shy away from uh, a complex role. Rather, I tend to look for them. So you seemed right up my alley, someone I'm wanting, wanting to understand, you know who she was and the impact she had on a very, you know, a man that's like deep in, deep in our history. So. And speaking of films that matter, what can you say about choosing to be part of Antebellum, which received multiple awards this past year from our Women Film Critics Circle? Yeah, I mean, that was a wild thing. I mean, also to be part of something so wildly timely. Um, you know, as we all sort of sat at home and witnessed the biggest, you know, social justice movement of our lifetime, um, I, it felt like a gift. It felt like I was, I was, I was given an opportunity to be educated and listen and be a part of a narrative that, you know, I mean, I've probably got generations of slave owners somewhere in my blood. I mean, we're all sort of standing on borrowed and and uh, Aiken land, and so it felt like um, felt like an important time to kind of dive into that person and get to know my, my ancestors a little bit. Now, you were once asked about growing up in the, quote, scary world of Hollywood, and you said, but the scary world is all around us. Whether the walls are Hollywood, New York, or Afghanistan, it's just a scary world, and you have to know what you want from it. What can you say about that? Uh, well, I guess I had a good head on my shoulders. <laughs> I don't know. It's so different now as a mom. I mean, I try to sort of just, you know, I'm just constantly trying to alchemize fear, you know, elevate it, um, you know, ball, roll it around, see what's underneath it, figure out what is scary and where the lack of information or the lack of understanding or the lack of wisdom is coming from. So I feel like my journey with fear as a parent is so different now, whereas, like, I want to be the demonstrator that, like, feels fear but doesn't, um, is not in, um, uh, what's it called, you know, frozen by it, but rather it's, it's just another beautiful human phenomena that you have to kind of keep working and flowing through. So, um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, we have the good and the bad, and it's, um, it's a journey, and it's very nonlinear. So I think we get to continue to shape and uh, make the world what we want it to be. And we're on a path. <laughs> it's going to be a long path, but we're on it. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Jenna Malone, for calling into our show. Yeah, I appreciate it. You were wonderful. Thank you for your very thoughtful question. Now, about those actual mermaids, Let's take the Arts Express over to that dive bar in downtown Sacramento, where Jenna Malone got her feet wet, so to speak, and hear all about it from dive bar mermaid Rachel Smith preparing for her night in that saloon tank. 
always been a costumer and a performer. I think that it's such a unique job and experience, and you know, there are very few fantasy characters that you can be as a person. You know, you can't go out and, I want to be a phoenix, or I want to be, you know, all of these different things, but you can actually be a mermaid, which is a lot of fun. Um, and I think I like seeing and hearing people's reactions too, and just sort of experiencing what mermaids mean to all these different people. tend to swim between nine and one. Um, there'll be more shows always on a busier night, like a Saturday and a Friday. But Monday is actually one of the most fun nights to come because we do Mutiny Monday, and we usually have a theme. Tonight we're doing Game of Thrones, so I'm Daenerys Mermaid. It's awesome. <laughs> is out now in release. And next up on Arts Express, action star Mei-Ling Ng, known for Wonder Women and The Scorpion King, is next appearing in the James Gunn fantasy thriller The Suicide Squad. And in no way an action hero, but rather her character Mongol is described as, quote, a malevolent muscular alien who doesn't play well with others. In this conversation with Ng, she has plenty to say as well as a martial arts medalist herself about those Norwegian female volleyball athletes being fined for refusing to wear bikinis at the Olympics and the UK-born Asian Americans encounter with Asian hate in this country. First, some scenes from Ng's fearless female battle scenes in her movies and though mostly on the visual side for the radio, you can, so to speak, get the picture. There's only two ways out of that valley, and we'll shut them both off. We have been riding all night, the men, the horses, then he dressed. I learned this the hard way. A long, long time ago. Who's that? That's Maya, Queen of the Aswan. Bend your knee when you speak to me. I need his soul. You have the money. Uh, no. Scorpion can. It'll lock in for you. Hello, and welcome to our show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. What was it about the Suicide Squad that got you on board? Um, I actually went for an audition. This was one of the first times I've actually done a film through an audition. I usually kind of don't hear anything back. So it was a, it was a great surprise that it was actually for uh, the Suicide Squad. And I auditioned for The Creature. It was obviously very secretive because it was DC and Warner Brothers and they don't give that information out on breakdowns. And um, so I went in as Creature and to read for a role uh, for a new James Gunn movie. And then uh, when they offered me the role, it was uh, the Suicide Squad and my head blew off. I was so excited. And what intrigued you about playing the character Mongol, described as, quote, a malevolent orange muscular alien who doesn't play well with others? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know what, it's really empowering to play Mongal just because, I mean, it's the first live adaption of Mongal, so I'm very honored to, to do that and bring her to life. Um, 
but you know, you know, it's just she's slightly sociopathic where she doesn't play, she doesn't care to play well with others. She doesn't like anyone. She doesn't like anything. I mean, she has a really her father's a tyrant and a warlord, Mongol the Elder, and he he has a great history in the comic books fighting against Superman. So um, she has this kind of already chip on her shoulder, fighting with, you know, trying to have power against her father and her brother who was always trying to kill her. So she has this attitude of, like, don't mess with me. And it was just great to play a a really unapologetic female who just doesn't want friends, doesn't care for anyone, total sociopathic, like, narcissistic attitude. It was just very freeing to kind of, go in there and just gonna growl and just like great and you also once said i don't want to be a bond girl i want to be a bond villain it's easier to play the snarling warrior ripping a man's head off than a simpering submissive damsel in distress that's not me please elaborate well i grew up with um with many brothers and i was a tomboy and um I think a bit, I don't know if it's because I'm Aries, but, you know, my father wanted me to be the typical conservative, submissive, like Asian female, and I was just the, the strongest, the loudest. And I think because I have to, like, sink or swim with my brothers through, like, food, toys, and whatever, so I just kind of battled with everyone. And I, I don't know, it's just my personality is just I would never let anyone uh, treat me like a victim. I've just always been independent. I've lived across the world. I've lived, you know, I've lived in Tenerife, Canary Islands, is where all my family are. It's a beautiful island of Africa. I've lived in Eng- England, Asia, all over, like Bali, Singapore, Hong Kong. And I've just moved everywhere by myself. I came to LA six years ago by myself. And I'm just really independent. So I just, I would love to play there. Um, the villain more than the eye candy, I suppose. And with these strong characters you play, are men afraid of you? Absolutely. Or does your scary combat skills attract them to you romantically? I mean, I guess, the, to be honest, I've been single 11 years. <laughs> 2010 was like my last serious boyfriend. And I've, I've, I've had dates and, you know, I've had like a, a small relationship, but it usually just crashes and burns because... A guy will love what I do and what I stand for, and then they'll start to kind of want to hold me back. You know, oh, do you have to go to the gym? Do you have to do this? Do you have to? Because I'm very, I'm very motivated, and I'm very, like, I'm a go-getter. And a lot of guys love that, and then they hate that, and they try to put you in a bit of a box, I find. Like, and they, they like me, they like to walk in a place with me because, I don't know, maybe I'm a slightly Amazonian ish i don't know but then after a while they're a bit like oh can you you know can you can we just chill on the sofa and eat pizza or can we go to vegas and get drunk for like four days and i'm like i just have to fit my schedule like i mean i can once in a while if i'm not booked for a movie i can certainly do that but if i'm booked for a movie my blinkers are on and i i'm really dedicated to my craft and bringing my best at the time and as an athlete yourself what are your thoughts about those Olympic women told to wear sexualized outfits, those bikinis there? Absolutely ridiculous. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. And it's, it's in the old ages, and I'm sure now that's been brought up, and that we don't, and they don't have to do that anymore. I mean, I, I really, I, I feel for this, especially for the volleyball players and stuff, where, you know, you're just flying around and doing stuff, and it's a pair of, like, bottoms. What is that? And you can't wear what you want. It's just, yeah, it's just old ages. That's all going to go out because now finally women are standing up for themselves and they're not going to be subjected to this. And with the current anti-Asian race hate going on in this country, have you you been a victim? Um, I'll be honest. um, I've been very lucky uh, recently. I think because of my physique is, is, is quite strong now and people are not are not more inclined to kind of like think how they can they can take me as much as like my I've been with my friends and she's a very small Asian and she um, had some really when the when the pandemic first uh, came out she actually got as nearly assaulted in a supermarket and um, you know and I uh, and I came around the corner and uh, you know I stopped that and uh, but it's it's 
Nothing like that has attracted to me just because of my build, I'm lucky to say. But in when I was growing up, absolutely. Like, when I was younger, I had so much stuff. I mean, I, I think one of... I mean, this has been going back for years and decades. One of my first memories, which is really unfortunate, was I um, I was on a... It was in the playground, and they threw, like, these eggs. I, I was, like, three or two, and one smashed me in the face. And they were like, we, we don't want Chinese in our playground. And they tried to, like, throw us out of the playground to not touch their, their play stuff. You know? But, so, like, that's one of my first memories. So this is, like, just coming to light now that it's unacceptable and the hate's got to stop. And so um, I've been lucky. My friends haven't so much. That's why on my Instagram I have a, the handle Stop Asian Hate. You know, I support all of this in the AAPI movement. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was also, it wasn't represented too well for the last two years, uh, you know. So hopefully things are changing and people are realizing you can't do this to uh, a minority and then get away with it. What do you think it is about you that made you reject the life of a typical female and rebel against your family's wishes to play warrior women on screen? Uh, I, I see a girl who wished that she had the strength to do her dreams 20 years ago, 30 years ago, because it was only six years ago I came to the U.S. Um, and on an 01 after visa, and I had to give it, I think, 100%. And once I gave it 100%, it just all happened to me. And I really wish I had that belief, that do-or-die system, like 20 years ago, because I never thought I could do it. I didn't really believe in myself. I think because of, I've always been told to be quiet and stand in the corner. So I just, you know, and I was louder, but I just still had this slight insecurity of, like, not thinking I was going to match up. I didn't wear a dress or a pair of heels until I was 28 years old. That's how, like, in, insecure I was, you know? I just wanted to wear trainers and jeans and hide, like, hide a little. Even though I was, like, I was standing up for myself, I still wouldn't put myself out there that way. And... You know, and then I'm in Singapore and I'm representing the country in a bikini for like figure competition. You know, it just shows you like what your mind is. You overcome your mind and just don't care what people think. I really wish that I I looked at myself and just realized I shouldn't have cared what people think because people are too busy to think about you and what you're doing. Mm. Just get on with your own dreams. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for calling into the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And The Suicide Squad is out this week in release. John Savage. If you're if you're listening to this right now, you're way ahead of everybody else in the world. This is Arts Express with Barry Miller, and she's had the courage to give a call to me, uh, John Savage, and uh, I'm grateful to be a part of what I consider to be one of our most important radio programs and networks we have available in this country today. So hang in there. All right. And now on Arts Express. Let's keep it fun and simple. Easy come, easy go. You know my love is no sweat. It's 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 no sweat. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. It's the dog days of summer, and wherever there are men and women, there is sweat. Our guest today has taken a deep dive, metaphorically and maybe literally, into that pool of sweat. 
I'm happy to be talking with Canadian science journalist and teacher author Sarah Everts, whose new book, The Joy of Sweat, tells us everything you wanted to know about sweat. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Sarah, what got you curious about sweat? Well, you know, I spent most of my life slightly mortified by my own sweat. You know, I worried I might sweat too much when I'm at the gym. It's just the workout warm up and I'm already reaching for the towel. But, you know, I'm also a science journalist, which means I knew that evolutionary biologists count sweating as, you know, one of the unique uh, and wonderful features of, of being human. And so, you know, one of the things that distinguishes us in the animal kingdom. So I thought, okay, I need to dig into the science uh, and culture of sweat in order to find a little bit more serenity rather than shame in all the sweating that I certainly do. Uh, you start with the mystery of the woman who sweat red. Yes. Talk about taking that anxiety about sweat to a whole nother level. This woman uh, shows up at a dermatology office in, in South Africa, and she's super anxious because her sweat is red. So not only is this extremely alarming for her to have something abnormal like this happening to her body, but she's also a nurse. And so she's wearing a, a white outfit and, you know, her sweat in her armpit area and, you know, the collar region, it, it's pinkish red. You know, so she was worried also that it was unprofessional. The dermatologist is stumped, uh, as is, you know, his whole scientific team, until she comes to an appointment with her fingers stained red. They're like, why is your finger red? And she was like, oh, I had a snack. And that's when the penny dropped. She'd been eating these red corn chips, spicy tomato corn chips, like in abundance, 45 bags of chips a week. Um, and effectively, <laughs> that dye had just been percolating out of her sweat. So the dye will get into the sweat. Yeah, what, because... What, what is sweat then? Well, right. So the dye was getting into the sweat because it was circulating around her body in her blood. And so sweat is actually sourced from the watery parts of your blood. Anything that is large, like red blood cells and platelets, gets filtered out. But when your body gets the cool down directive, you're two to five million sweat glands on the surface of your skin need to source sweat from somewhere and they source it from blood. And so literally anything that's going around in your blood can come out and sweat. It's so much more complex than just salt and water. And so some of that dye happened to be in her blood. And so it was also coming out in her sweat, just like, you know, garlic or, or alcohol uh, comes out in your sweat after a hard night of either. Those are odors, but this was just you know, a colorful chemical. And what's the purpose of sweating? Well, it's only to cool down. The way that it cools you down is evaporation of the water in sweat requires heat to happen. And so it's effectively consuming your body heat and using that body heat to dispatch water molecules off the surface of your skin and out into the atmosphere. And that turns out to be the most efficient way for any animal to cool down. One thing that you are pretty strong about in your book, because it's such a misconception, I, cert I certainly had it, was that the purpose of sweating is to cool a person off and it's not to get rid of toxins. Yeah, you know, the, that detox myth is really, really pervasive. But if you think about uh, where sweat is sourced, it's sourced from the watery parts of your blood. And so if you truly detoxed by sweating, then you would literally have to sweat out all the watery parts of your blood, leaving you, you know, dry and dehydrated uh, on the inside and probably dead. Instead, your kidneys filter uh, your blood of all the nasty chemicals and, and dispatch that out in pee. Which is not to say, though, that our bodies aren't leaky. They're dispatching to the surface of our skin the watery parts of blood. So anything that's in your blood, you know, comes along for the ride. You're not just an armchair research journalist. You are a seat-of-the-pants action reporter as well. When you heard there are people who sniff armpits for a living, what did you do? I went and got my armpits <laughs> sniffed. It was like a beeline. Yeah. 
I thought to myself, what, this job exists? And it makes sense when once you know why. There are tons of products out there that you know claim to control our body odor for X amount of time. And the companies need to hire professional sniffers uh, to assess whether their products are actually working. Yeah, so I went and had my armpit sniffed. And I have to say that the gonzo journalist in me was so excited to do this. And then I arrive and then I'm like, oh crap, somebody's going <laughs> to sniff my armpit. And not only yeah. you know, is it a somebody, it's a professional nose. So yes, it was both uh, delightful um, and kind of a little alarming. And what did the sniffer find, <laughs> if that isn't too much information? Uh, well, you know, uh, I think we've already reached the TMI moments anyway, so <laughs> like, there's, there's no going back. Yeah, so what's so amazing about uh, the process is it's very regulated. So, you know, you have two armpits, which science adores, because you have, like, the control armpit that gets no product, and then the real uh -huh. armpit that, you know, the that, that does get a product. And you have to kind of put your hand behind your head, you know, lift up your arm so that your armpit is gloriously exposed. Uh, and then the sniffer leans in to only exactly six inches from your armpit and does a sequence of small sniffs. They're called bunny sniffs. That's the technical term. Takes in the odor of your armpit and assesses its intensity and then, you know, switches to the other side. Yeah, I was probably uh, not the right kind of candidate, but I was also not officially in a scientific assessment moment. Um, Does everyone's sweat smell different? The nerd in me wants to know if there's a genetic component, whether, whether you and your sister or me and my brother have similar sweat smell. Great question. To answer it, I have to kind of take a quick step back because we actually have two kinds of sweat glands. There's, you know, the sweat gland we've been talking about a bit uh, that, you know, dispatches watery fluid to our skin to, to evaporate or heat away. But there's another sweat gland that appears in our armpits at puberty. It gets functional in the teenage years, and it's responsible for turning our armpits into stink zones from adolescence into adulthood. And it's interesting because that second kind of sweat gland, it produces a waxy kind of sweat. And that waxy sweat is not actually stinky at all when it pops out of your um, armpit pores, but it becomes stinky because bacteria living in your armpits eat it. And it's their metabolic byproducts, which is sort of scientific euphemism for you know, bacterial poop. It's their bacterial products uh, that make us stinky. And so effectively, the way that you smell and the way that I smell is uh, a product of, you know, exactly the chemical constituents of that armpit sweat. And that's based on your genetics. But it's also based on, you know, what bacteria happen to be living in your armpit and are munching, munching away at your sweat. So there's this nature and this nurture um, component, but your body odor print is definitely different than mine and probably different than your siblings, although it's probably more similar to your siblings than it is to mine. But, you know, dogs can distinguish people and help track them just based on that beautiful cornucopia or symphony of, of molecules that is in your body odor versus mine. Well, there are some people who believe that aroma and sweat is the key to happy dating and you, in your role as action reporter, took part in a fascinating little speed dating group. Tell us about that, Sarah. So sweat dating is based on the idea that, you know, at some point, whether you're just interested in a, a simple tryst or trying to track down a, a life partner, at some point you're going to smell the body odor of that person and it will be a make or break moment. And so instead of, you know, triaging your dates based on how they look or, you know, their love of a Murakami novel or, or whatever hobbies they possess, <laughs> instead of that, you can triage based on their BO. And uh, in practice, what happens is you show up at one of these events and they are uh, happening all over the world. I went to one in Moscow, but uh -huh. I know there's been one uh, in New York, for example. And the first thing you do is you're given kind of a wet wipe to take off all the products you may have put on. 
And then you're taken through an exercise routine where, you know, you're doing burpees and jumping jacks, you're working up a sweat. And once everybody's uh, all nice and sweaty, you're given a cotton pad to dab your parts uh, anywhere that there might be some BO. And then you put that into a glass jar. The glass is numbered and only you know the number and only the organizers know the number. Uh And then uh the jars are placed on a table and everybody sniffs through them. And you're supposed (laughs) to, yeah, yeah. Uh, You're supposed to rank them in your own mind pick your top five. And if, for example, you were in my top five and I was in your top five, then we would be a match. And at my particular event in Moscow, anybody who got matched with another person got this VIP bracelet to an all-you-can-drink VIP cocktail lounge um, to, to find out if the like looks and hobbies did match up. And yeah, what a surreal experience because you're, you're sniffing through all these glass jars and and some are quite honestly noxious um others are just kind of familiar and comforting i can't express it in a different way and then some i mean one in particular for me i was just like oh hello um, but uh, yeah, I did get matched, sadly not with the jar number 15, which was my like, hello jar. But yeah, it's super surreal experience. Well, I guess this brings us to the idea of pheromones. I mean, are they for real? Is Do sexual pheromones uh, really exist? Can you spike a perfume with pheromones and be immediately attractive to the opposite sex? <laughs> You've been reading the uh, taglines of some online entrepreneurs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So those entrepreneurs uh, are definitely in existence. But once you know what they're spiking uh, into those uh, pheromone colognes, you might not want to be putting them on. Um, because actually, one of the most common supposed human pheromones is actually a boar pheromone. So <laughs> what happens with uh, you know, animals is that sex pheromones, you know, do certainly exist. And in the particular case of a wild pig, a boar, the male produces a pheromone in his saliva. And when he breathes heavily on a female in heat, she automatically um, spins around and lifts her rump sort of in a universal signal that she wants to start a family. But, you know, in terms of whether such molecules or such chemicals exist in human, when chemists have tried to pluck from the hundreds of molecules coming off our bodies that we can smell, which of those is responsible for that kind of level of attraction or interest, they have come up empty. And Mm. so (laughs) we haven't found like a molecule like that for humans. So unless you're looking to date a wild boar, it it probably is not such a great idea. Yeah, no judgment. Uh, Well, here's what I'm wondering, Sarah. If each person's sweat is unique, can it be used for criminal identification and government surveillance? Is that too paranoid? So I don't think you're being too paranoid. When you know what sweat is, right, it's just the watery parts of blood. And so anything that's circulating in your blood can come out in your sweat, which means, you know, signs of your vices and signs of your health come out in every drip. And not only that, but they are left behind in your fingerprints, which are just sweat prints. So I actually had my fingerprints chemically analyzed by a forensic scientist. And, you know, most of the time, forensic scientists are interested in how fingerprints look, right? The whirls and the swirls and how those um, match to criminal databases. But, you know, if there's no match from a crime scene fingerprint in a database, detectives are kind of stumped, right? They don't know about that person who is at the crime scene. Well, chemists are now able to analyze the molecules that are in our sweat that are left behind in those fingerprints. So when I had my index finger analyzed, the forensic chemist could tell that I'd had a a morning coffee. Now that's, you know, not particularly secretive, but had I spiked that coffee with a shot of whiskey or had I done some other kind of drug on the side as part of my morning routine, that also comes out in sweat. So, And, you know, although this scientific research is on the early stages of things, 
what if your employer starts analyzing, you know, the fingerprints you leave all over your cubicle to find out if you come to work intoxicated? What if health insurance or insurers, sorry, uh, analyze your fingerprint sweat before giving you insurance because biomarkers of disease come out in sweat? So, for example, you can diagnose some cancers. There's all sorts of applications, but yeah, I do feel that the privacy question and making sure that these sorts of analyses are, are being done with, with consent um, is extremely important. And I would like to see you know, privacy advocates get, get on this before the technology um, hits the mainstream because it's in development, but it's, it's coming. But as we wrap up, is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't covered that you'd like to speak about? I guess I would say when you're kind of mortified uh, by a sweat patch, um, you know, it's just your body desperately trying to keep you alive on a hot day because, you know, death by heat stroke is a terrible way to go. And so, you know, be grateful. Your, your body is doing its thing, working hard and trying to keep you alive. Thanks so much, Sarah. It's been my pleasure. I've been speaking with science journalist Sarah Everts, whose new book is The Joy of Sweat, The Strange Science of Perspiration, a very entertaining and informative book published by W.W. Norton and Company. This is Jack Shalom, keeping cool as a cucumber for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.